Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. Matthew, chapter 23, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from verses 13 through 39 from Matthew, chapter 23. While you're turning there, let's sing that uh, uh, chorus. It's uh, 30 or 40 years old, uh, based on lamentations about the steadfast love of the Lord. You know that song? It's been a while since we sung it. Let's sing it, shall we? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. These are sharp words from the Lord Jesus. How shall we read them? Sharply. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a hell, a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind, blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but in the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in those days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophecies. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them will you, you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are striking words from the Lord Jesus, sobering words from the Lord Jesus. We're not used to him talking like this. If you're uh, not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, maybe it's words that are very similar to this that you've heard religious people say that just totally turns you off. I don't want to be a part of a faith that talks about people like this in any way. If you are a Christian, you should know why God talks like this sometimes. We think about these coming from Jesus' mouth. Philip Yancey, years ago in a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, said this, As I studied the life of Christ, one impression about Jesus struck me more forcefully than any other. We have tamed him. The Jesus I learned about as a child was sweet and inoffensive. The kind of person whose lap you want to climb on, Mr. Rogers with a beard. Indeed, Jesus did have qualities of gentleness and compassion that attracted little children. Mr. Rogers, however, assuredly, he was not. Not even the Romans would have crucified Mr. Rogers. Did you notice the beat, the, the punctuation that moves this passage that we read along? Woe to you, teachers of the law. Woe to you, woe to you. This is, a, well, the, the word woe is, is a vocalized sigh. In some instances, it's appropriate to say it like this, woe. It, it's a word that contains in it judgment and pity, compassion and condemnation. This is the last public message that the Lord Jesus delivers to Judah, and it is full of woe. Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, the first public message that the Lord Jesus said, uh, delivered and what he said and what punctuated that first message that he gave? It's in Matthew 5. He, he came and he went up on the mountain and he said, blessings, blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessing, 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 blessing. That's how he began with these promised blessings. And now Jesus' ministry ends with these repeated woes. Opposites. It's not difficult to figure out what Matthew is getting at here. Jesus came pronouncing blessing. Come to him. Blessing upon the poor in the spirit. In the spirit. Blessed on the morning. Blessed on the merciful. Blessings for those who are persecuted. Blessings for those who are guilty and ashamed and lost and disappointed and so discouraged. Come to Jesus. He offers blessings. But... Because Jesus is God's Messiah, because he is the Christ, because he is the Lord, if you will not receive his blessings, there will be nothing left for you but his woe, his sorrow-filled woe. In some ways, Matthew 23 is the climax of the question that we've kind of been tracing through the gospel of Matthew. We've asked and answered a few times this question, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why are there not more Jewish followers of Jesus? If he's their promised savior, the one that God had been telling them he would send for hundreds, thousands of years, why are there not more Jewish followers? And the answer in part to that question is these leaders, these Pharisees who are leading the people astray so grotesquely. Um, A few years after Matthew wrote his gospel, the temple in Jerusalem, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The Sadducees, uh, the rival for influence in Palestine, were wiped off the the planet from uh, when the temple was destroyed. And the Pharisees, they just came to dominate first century Judaism. These are the type of leaders that these men and women in Judea have. And because of their influence, they have by and large turned against Jesus. This is not the only place in the Bible that the Bible condemns leaders. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 6. It's going to appear up on the screens. Ezekiel 34 says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, priests, and kings. That's who he's talking about there. Priests and kings of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe, there it is again. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep, God's sheep, my sheep have wandered all over the mountains, over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Look at what these priests and these kings, how what they were supposed to be doing. And instead the sheep, God's sheep are wandering, bruised, hurt, sick, starving. No one's taking care of them. That's how the prophets speak to uh, leadership. Um, Have you ever thought, I wonder about how the narrative sections of Scripture do? uh, One of the ways that the narrative sections of Scripture do this is uh, by describing to us the life of David. David, the great king, David, 
the man after God's own heart, the great king David, who is also an adulterer and a murderer. And the second half of Samuel tells the story of what happened, the account of what happened to David's family and David's kingdom and David's advisors in the wake of his adultery and murder. When there is corruption in the leadership, it spreads, it infects, it pollutes. It polluted his family, it affected his generals, it just spread throughout the kingdom. Second Samuel does not tell us about David's adultery and murder to say to us, God can use adulterers and murderers to accomplish his purposes. He can, that's true, God can do that, that is true. But the second half of Samuel is there to tell us this is what happens when our leaders act like this pollution spreads and poisons the whole society. doesn't matter whether it's a priest, a king, a pastor, a president, it spreads. Do you know what we really need? You read the Bible and you read these accounts of these leaders. Do you know what we really need? We need a leader like Jesus. We need Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God in his kindness has given Christ has given Christ to be head of the church. Not an angel, I suppose he could have put, could have put an angel over us or he could have put a, a king over the church. That's a possibility. But he gave us Jesus to be head of the church. Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, who has come to give us life, abundant life, life to the full. Every human leader fails. Do you know who, what we need? Who we need? We need Jesus. We need him to come soon. So I can repeat with pleading with you from Matthew, please, you must hear me. Jesus has come to offer blessing. If you will not receive the blessing, there is nothing left for you but his woe. This is a pronouncement of judgment on the leaders and the people of Judah. We pick it up as a warning. It's interesting when you read the Gospels, Jesus' most strident words are for the people around him who really loved the Bible and really took the faith seriously. He welcomed prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and all kinds of outsiders to come. He implored with them to come and repent, but his most strident comments, his most strident words were for those who really take the Bible seriously and wanted to live out the faith. Jesus calls them hypocrites. I understand that. A hypocrite is someone who is not, not necessarily someone who is consciously villainous, They may actually be trying to help and doing the right thing. They may be trying to do that. The problem with a hypocrite is the inconsistency because between what they're trying to do or what they want to do or how they appear to be and what they actually are. It is possible. It is possible to be a very sincere, very hopeful um, person who's serving God's purposes and, and trying to do God's work. It's possible to be that person and be very, very wrong in your motives, your message, your methods. Talk some time to a friend, and and many of us have friends like this, who've spent time in Haiti. Haiti's a country that's not very far from the United States, and it's also a country that seems to be perennially in crisis. Natural disasters, economic disasters. And because it's close to the United States, it's relatively cheap to fly. There are a lot of Americans go to Haiti to help. And I'm so grateful for those men and women and the, the energy they spend and the time they spend and the money they spend going to Haiti to try to help. It's, it's, 
it's an honorable thing to try to help others. The problem is, well, ask the people who've been there a long time, and they'll tell you that one of the consequences of that constant one-week help from us is that it just increases dependence among the people in Haiti and, and may not actually be for their long-term benefit. Sincere actors bringing help that hurts, not help that helps. The Pharisees, at least some of these Pharisees, fall into that camp. Jesus is speaking to people who, men who very sincerely believe that they're doing what God wants them to do. There's a warning, though, for us, warnings, warnings that we find in these woes. Uh, I want to point out to you four of them. We're going to take the woes and put them together. They seem to be paired a little bit. Three pairs of two woes and then a seventh woe. And here's some warnings for us. Jesus is warning against, number one, denying the good news about Jesus. Denying the good news about Jesus. Woe number one, let's look at it again, verse 13, just to remind ourselves. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Now, in context, Jesus has to be talking about their response to him. He's God's Messiah. He has come preaching a message of the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees have said, no. And you have to think about their influence on some people. There must be people in the crowds around Jesus who are impressed with his miracles, who are drawn in by his teaching. But they look at the Pharisees and they hear them scoffing and they see them shaking their heads and they see them turning and not repenting. And they must think to themselves, well, if the Pharisees aren't doing it, if the Pharisees aren't believing in Jesus, I guess he's not who he says he is. What's worse, verse 16 talks about their, uh, sorry, verse 15 talks about their evangelistic ministry. Now, there's some debate about the Jews of Jesus' day and how evangelistic they were. Historically, uh, Jews have not been evangelistic people. In part, it has to do with the differences between faith in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and faith in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you could describe the faith as a come-and-see faith. Come and see what God has done in this nation. Come and see how God has blessed this people. And he has given them this land. Come and see. In the New Testament, the difference is it's a go and tell faith. Go and tell people. Go and tell people what God has done for us through Jesus. So by and large, these Jews are not evangelistic people. Although there, there's some evidence that says, suggests to us that the Pharisees were uh, doing some evangelistic work. In fact, Jesus says they travel over land and sea, like the Marine Corps, right? <laughs> They're going to win a single convert. But the problem is, the problem is, they're focused so much on the rules of being a Pharisee and not on faithfulness to God that the converts are actually worse than the Pharisees themselves. They're rabid rule keepers. Oh, there's a warning for us here, a, a, a concern that, that we could take up that would be similar. The warning would be about sidelining the good news about Jesus. It's possible for us to very firmly believe the good news about Jesus and yet to make that message secondary, to sideline it, to put it on the back burner, to replace the centrality of it with other things, other things that are good, but other things that are not of first importance. For example, a church could decide to focus 
uh, on family values to the exclusion, uh, to the sidelining of the gospel, or uh, uh, on community service, both very good things, not when you sideline the gospel for them, or uh, political debates, political issues. Or sometimes it's possible to sideline the gospel by talking about the gospel as if it's the doorway you need to get into the church. And now that you're in the church, we leave that behind. You've done step A. Now everything else is step B, C, D, E, and F. But but Christian growth is not about going beyond the gospel. It's about going deeper into the gospel. Don Carson has taught at seminary, uh, Trinity Seminary, for decades, and he said, I think I have told you this before, he said, my students never learn what I teach them. My students never learn what I teach them. Instead, my students learn what I'm excited about, what I'm passionate about in class. That's what they learn. Do you see that dynamic at work in your house? Your children don't learn what you teach them, but your children learn what you're passionate about. It reminds me of uh, what Charles Spurgeon said. This quote is worth saying once a year. I may actually have meet that mark. Charles Spurgeon said, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. When you speak of hell, well, then your everyday face will do. <laughs> it's possible, it's possible to sideline the good news about Jesus. Jesus warns us about it. Number two, he warns us about excusing disobedience excusing disobedience. Find reasons, find distractions, find things that keep us from obeying what God has commanded. Now, verse uh, woe number three in verse 16 is the longest section of woes, and it is about oaths. Just to pick up the flavor again of it, look at verse 16. It says, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. Now, I confess to you, the logic of the Pharisees eludes me here. I cannot explain why they think it's okay to say, I swear by the temple and not do what you say. But if you say, I swear by the gold of the temple, you better do it. I don't understand that logic. I don't, I don't get it. Jesus doesn't appreciate it either. Uh, but uh, what I do know is that, that there are books long books that the Pharisees had that they copied, that they memorized, that had all kinds of rules like this about oaths and swearing oaths. And when you, when you tell the truth and when you don't, when you have to keep your promise and not, when you have to keep your word and when you don't. And all these little tricks and all these little uh, uh, ways, this is the problem, ways to avoid telling the truth. And the Bible says, followers of Jesus, we just tell the truth. We don't embellish, we don't spin, we don't hide the truth. We just tell the truth plainly, simply. We are the truth-telling people. Well, number four is more about a distraction, something that's distracting them from uh, their obedience. Uh, it's, It's about tithing. There was a debate in Jesus' day about what things that you grew on your farm or in your home garden you had to tithe. The book of Deuteronomy is specific. It says you have to tithe corn, wine, and oil. Give 10% of the corn, wine, and oil. Um, The book of Leviticus maybe opens it up to other things, and this is debated. But the Pharisees, they were serious. They were very serious about their tithing. So they would go to their garden outside their kitchen, their kitchen garden where the spices would be, and they would start counting their mint leaves. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 
eight, nine. And the 10th one, they tied. Then they would count their dill stalks. One, two, three, four. And when that number 10, tied that one. And their cumin seeds. One, two, three, four, five. And number 10 had to be tied. They were serious about this. They spent so much time focused on their tithing that they didn't have any time and didn't give much care to the weightier matters of the law. There are embedded in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament too, principles, priorities that are embedded deeply in the text that God's people are to embody. And Jesus mentions three of them here, justice, mercy, faithfulness, truth-telling. And, and you're so, so busy counting your cumin seeds that you give no thought to whether or not you're being merciful or just or faithful. Seems like Jesus is maybe quoting from Micah 6, 8, a verse that many of us are familiar with. Uh, he's referring to it at least. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus says, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. My guess is that in this context, when Jesus first spoke these words, I mean, he was being pretty fierce. I don't know that anybody had a chance to laugh at that, but that is pretty funny. I mean, it's dinner time, and the waiter brings your soup and sets your soup bowl down, and inside is a camel flopping over. And you, you pick up the leg, and you look very carefully because you don't want a gnat in your soup. I mean, that would be horrible. As you search and lift up the tail of the camel, and okay, no gnats, we're good. And down goes the camel. Silly. There are gnats in the Bible, there are camels in the Bible. Don't ignore the camels while you're searching for the gnats. Don't, don't try to find ways out of the commands that God has given us. Don't try to rationalize disobedience, don't try to make excuses. For it. Don't, don't create distractions that keep you from the deep principles of the Bible. A few months ago, we talked about the issue of forgiveness. Boy, God is serious about forgiveness. And you know, you know about the temptation that we have to try to find the way out, the loopholes, the reason why you in this instance don't have to forgive. We work at that. Or we talked in the context, in the same very chapter as almost, of forgiveness, the Bible talks, Jesus talks to us about divorce. I know there's disagreement in the church of Jesus Christ about divorce, but we, we have to recognize the, the, disappoint, uh, the, the tendency that we have to, um, when marriage is hard, when marriage is hard, to try to find the loopholes, try to find the way out, try to find what Jesus says, how Jesus, what he says, is big enough for me to fit in so that I can get out of what this hard marriage that I'm in. We should be honest. Jesus said, we should be honest about this. Jesus said, you remember this, he said his yoke was easy and his burden is light, as if following him is like going down a water slide. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? Huh. He did say to take up your cross and follow him. Sometimes 
following Jesus is not, doesn't feel like going down a water slide. It feels like a rock climb. And when it gets really hard, it's so easy to think, is there a way out? Is, where's the off-ramp? Isn't there a, is there a way around this? Is there a way that I can stop this? Is... Ask somebody in the room who's followed Jesus a long time. There are people in the room who've followed Jesus for decades. Find them. They have gray hair or no hair. Find them and ask them, and they'll tell you, they will tell you, if you know Jesus, rock climbing with Jesus is far better than a water slide without him. They'll they'll tell you, ask them. Warning number three, elevating appearance over internal change. Elevating appearance over internal change. This is Woe 5. It starts in verse 25. Jesus talks about washing dishes. There were rules. They would argue about this. What's the best way to wash dishes? How are you supposed to do it? And, and the common practice was, most important, you got to wash the outside of the dish, not the inside, which is just, if you ask me, brothers and sisters, nasty, right? Would this pass muster in your house? Uh, here, I'm done with the dishes. Yeah, you did the outside, but the inside is still gross. I can still see the macaroni and cheese baked on there. Come on, right? Right? And, and here's the problem. You Pharisees, you, you look really good, but on the inside, you're still nasty. Or then he says, woe number, what, six is it? The whitewashed tombs. Remember, Jesus spoke these words about Passover time. He's in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Uh, it was Jewish tradition at this time, one month before Passover, you were supposed to go out to your family tomb and uh, wash it, paint it uh, with whitewash, whitewash the tomb. The reason is, in those days, they did not have designated cemeteries like we do, where all of our dead are buried. You would bury somebody um, um, on your property or uh, in a convenient place. Or, so there, were, there were graves everywhere. If you were going to a religious festival and you, uh, you would want to be clean, spiritually clean, ritually clean so that you could celebrate the festival, but if you touch an un, uh, a dead body or you touch someone's tomb, you become unclean because death is unclean. So one month before Passover, one month before everybody's supposed to tra- be traveling, go and paint your tombstones so that everybody can see them, the, the tombs, so everybody can see them and avoid them and not be contaminated when they go celebrate the festival. You see, you can imagine, though, this is kind of odd, how those whitewashed tombs might look, especially in the moonlight, right? The white moon coming down and bouncing off of those whitewashed stones everywhere. Wouldn't that be just beautiful? It's like, like the snow in, in February when the snow is in the ground and the moon is shining on it at night and the snow just bounces the light off. It's, it's, just, it's just lovely. Inside those tombs, there's decomposing corpses. I mean, that's true. But just nice. Jesus says, you look nice on the outside, Pharisees, you look, but inside you're full of uncleanness and defilement and brokenness. It's, it's easy to elevate appearance over internal change. You should be careful this week. Some of you should be careful this week this is a good week. Some of you have, God has given you great skills in hosting and welcoming people to your home. And you're looking forward to using the skills and you've been thinking about it for a while. You have 
bought all the ingredients that you can that are uh, stable, but you'll, you'll get the most important ingredients that, that have to be fresh. You'll get those on Wednesday. And you've been planning for a long time. You've got your recipe cards out and you've got all the favorites. And then every year you throw in something new just to see how, what people like it. And maybe it'll become a favorite. And, and you've ironed your tablecloth and your Thanksgiving decorations are all ready. And you are, it's going to be great. And you're looking forward to it. Uh, and, and exercising your skills. This is the way you show love to the people that you love. Sometimes an iron tablecloth can bring great glory to God. But not if it comes at the cost of a grateful heart. You know what your nephews and nieces really need from you this week. What they really need from you is patience and kindness and gentleness. More than the warm smell of fresh rolls in the oven, they need the warmth of your heart that is for them and toward them. Do you have time this week? You got pies to make. You got potatoes to peel. I know that. Do you have time? Do you have time this week to cultivate a grateful heart so that you can share that with your guests that are coming on Thursday? Tablecloths, well-ironed tablecloths bring glory to God, but not if you're going to be mean about it. Warning number four, warning number four, Jesus warns us of repenting of other people's sins and not your own. Repenting of other people's sins and not your own. Jesus continues the tomb talk here in verse 29, woe seven, where he talks about the tombs that they have built for the prophets and the graves they have decorated of the righteous. And they recognize, you know, (laughs) our parents, our ancestors killed the prophets, but uh, well, we're gonna honor the prophets. And you know, If we had been alive back then, we never would have killed the prophets. We would have listened to the prophets, but they did. So we're building these tombs to honor the prophets that my grandfather didn't listen to. Verse 30 talks about this here. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. It's not hard to repent of other people's sins. It's popular in our culture these days actually to lament the racist elements of our history as a country, to lament them. And, and it's good to be honest about the path that our country has taken. That's true. But, you know, a lot of the lamentation implies, you know, if I'd been alive back then, I wouldn't have done that. I certainly wouldn't have been involved in those crimes, those terrible racist things that people did. I wouldn't have done that. And Jesus says, oh, be careful. Be careful. It's evident to the Pharisees, yeah, you say you would have listened to the prophets. Well, no, you wouldn't have because you're not listening to the prophets now. Here's some examples from our own culture recently. Uh, Microsoft, the uh, software company, uh, recently did a uh, um, seminar for those involved in coding and computer business, and it was online. And, and uh, one of the speakers, first she came on and introduced herself, and she said, she gave her name and her position at Microsoft, and she said, before we continue, I would like to acknowledge that the land on which the Microsoft headquarters now sits was once owned by, and then she named eight Native American tribes that had used to be in that part of Seattle, and now it is the location of Microsoft's headquarters. We would never have stolen the land that our ancestors took. We would never have done that. We're not going to give it back, but we never would have stolen it like they did. 
right? Or think about NBA players who tweet and in interviews talk about the Jim Crow past of the United States, which is shameful. But those same NBA players continue to, take, to make millions of dollars in China and receive support and approval from the Chinese government at an oppressive government, a government that is oppressing the Uyghur people in a horrible genocide. Mm. Or think about Baptist preachers who condemn software engineers and basketball players but are so lenient on themselves about their own sins. It's so easy to repent of other people's sins. Be careful. Here's a test for you. Here's a test. When, when someone says, I never would have done that. I never would have done what my grandfather did, that terrible man. I never would have done that. Um, I would have stood up for the, the, the uh, oppressed. Okay, what oppressed people are you standing up for now? What unpopular opinion do you have now? Can I get a word for the unborn? Hmm. This final woe that Jesus issues leads to the sharpest of warnings and the deepest of laments. His warnings, verse 33, you brood of vipers. You come from a snake's nest. You think you're a son of Abraham. Actually, your daddy is the, the devil. You're a son of the snake. You're not a son of Abraham. And he says this pattern of prophetic killing is gonna continue. Interesting, verse 34 I am sending you prophets. Who in the Bible sends prophets? God sends prophets. And now Jesus says, I am going to do it. Here's Jesus' deity coming through in this denunciation. You're going to kill them. You're going to crucify them. You're going to flog them. You're going to pursue them from town to town. And here's this special warning upon you. Upon you is going to come all of the judgment that, that the people of Israel deserve because starting with Abel and ending with Zechariah, it's both A to Z and historically from the beginning to the end, all their blood, all that justice, all that wrath is going to come upon you, upon this generation. Jesus is speaking to them. Why them? Why them in particular? Because they heard from God's ultimate revelation, his own son, and they crucified him. And then he laments, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When the Bible repeats a name like that, it is tender and agonized. Mary, Mary. Simon, Simon. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's not a very manly image, is it? Your house is left to you desolate. I think he's talking about the temple in part. And then he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He talks about the destruction of the temple uh, or the the loss of the temple and his second coming that are threads that are going to lead us to Matthew 24 and 25. We'll get to that in time. What's going to happen in the temple? When's Jesus coming back? We'll, We'll get to that in Matthew 24. My question is, is Jesus really serious in this? Would he really take them in? You can imagine after all these things that he said, what should Jesus say? Good riddance. Good riddance. All of you deserve to go to hell, and that's just fine with me. Good riddance. 
That would make sense in light of all he says. And yet he says, oh, how I have longed to take you in. Would he really do that? These people, these people, this generation, would he really take them in? Here is the revelation again of Jesus' heart for sinners. You can tell he means what he's saying here because he is for them about to shed his own blood. He mentions all the martyrs and the wrath that's going to come on the city of Jerusalem from God, justice for this city that has rejected these prophets and all that wrath that's going to fall on them in just a few days from when Jesus says this, that wrath is going to fall on him. He's going to spread out his arms on the cross and he's going to die bearing the wrath of God. And you can come and find shelter under his arms. He longs for you to do so. He wants you to come and find shelter. You, even you, after all the terrible things that you have done, all of your hypocrisy, all of the, the, the things that you know in the Bible that you don't do and you keep doing them over and over and over again, all of the ways that you have huh, been an impediment to somebody become, becoming a follower of Jesus because of the, the way you speak or act. And Jesus says, oh, come and find shelter in me. Even in the face of all the ways that you failed him. Jesus came and he announced blessing. Blessing, he announced blessing. If you will not receive his blessing, there is nothing left for you but his woe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we take up these words with a sober spirit and hopefully with a careful mind. Lord, um, and, and we want to have tender hearts too, before this passage of Scripture. Oh God, keep us, keep us, guard us from elders and pastors who would lead like this. Lord, uh, make the men who serve as elders in this church repentant men, Jesus-magnifying men. Men who revel in the call that the Lord Jesus makes to find shelter under his wing. Lord, we confess there are many ways in which we have failed you, and we thank you for the longing that the Lord Jesus expresses here. We're grateful to you for the forgiveness that is found in Jesus, our great Savior. We believe you, Lord, when you say you want us to come. Grant, Lord, that we might care for those that are entrusted to us, our children, our growth group, our Sunday school classes, that we might care for them in a way that would magnify the Lord Jesus. Changes from the inside out, that, that the beauty might be uh, internal than externally visible. Help us, help us, O oh Lord. 
We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.